Diversion Audio. Emmanuel. From Ramsay in Fast and Furious to Masande in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men until now. Most of history's female war leaders did their work far behind the battle lines, not the woman we'll be talking about today. Queen Jinga Mabande of Southwest Africa was not a woman to be trifled with when she held a battle axe in her hands. She ruled a land surrounded by Portuguese slave traders. She led armies of thousands for a 30-year battle to save her kingdom and won the respect of missionaries, cannibals, diplomats, kings and two empires who were fighting for the control of Africa's coast in the early 17th century. And she did it with the best fashion flair of any war leader in history. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. The situation is a, a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Here to tell the story of Queen Jinga are the daughter-father history team of Emily and John Jordan. Natalie, it's so wonderful to see you here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I love the stories that you've written about women who are, you know, holding the reins of power at a time when war broke out. Absolutely. On screen, you play a lot of strong characters who really get pushed to their limit under incredible stress, which is pretty much all the women in our book. Yeah, Natalie, you've been in a lot of movies or TV shows where weddings drive the story arc, haven't you? <laughs> Apparently, yeah, I love a good wedding scene, though a lot of them don't really turn out as um, my character may <laughs> have wanted them to. But today we have a story about a beautiful wedding that takes place on the banks of the Kwanzaa River in Southwest Africa. Of course, the bride in this scene is our friend Jinga. That's the one, the fashionista with a battle axe. She was quite the wedding planner, apparently. What I especially love about Jinga is that she was a fierce, headstrong leader, but she still accepted different cultures and religions. I grew up in a West Indian family in the southeast of England. I, you know, I think that kind of tolerance of other cultures is important as a leader to any leader and her community. Hey, Emily, why don't you get us started by introducing Queen Jinga of Dongo and Matamba? 
So Jinka was born in 1582 in the Dongo region, which is actually what we now consider to be Angola. Uh, the reason it has that name actually is Jinka's people, the word for king was Angola, and they heard it wrong, and instead of kingdom, they took king and they said, oh, it's called Angola. So Hey, look, the Portuguese, uh, you know, they're not going to get everything right when they, when they rewrite the maps. You know, the thing about Jinga, when we started working on the book, I didn't think I'd like her. I mean, because she has some next level baggage. You know, she, she combined a lot of great skill sets. But, I mean, she did a lot of stuff that they don't show in horror films. So, you know, she was kind of a mixed bag, but I really grew to respect her. So, you know, yeah. she's born in the late 1500s. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened? Set the, set the time and place and, and just tell us what happens with her. So for most of Jinga's life, her people would be at war with the Portuguese. The Portuguese landed in 1575. So they were colonizing, invading, and taking her people and carting them away to be slaves on mostly... Uh, Brazilian plantations. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were absolutely terrorizing the locals. They would cut off people's noses, men and women, as a trophy to say, we have conquered these people. And one time it took over 20 people to carry out all of the noses of the conquered people. Yeah, I mean, that's some some nasty stuff. And it was a nasty time. Yes. And and as we we're going to talk about with all of these women, you know, the British like to say that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we've got to keep that in mind, but it seems like even by the standards of the 16th, 17th centuries, that's pretty brutal. Oh, absolutely. They were devastating her people and her country. So by the time she was born in 1582, she was actually born with the cord wrapped around her neck. And some priests predicted that she would never live a normal life. And as someone who works in medicine, I work in behavioral health as a nurse, I'd, I'd have to imagine they probably meant like, oh, she has compromised oxygenation, something to do with that. That's probably not what they were talking about. No, I think it was more of a prophetic sense that she would go on to live an incredible life. And, and she absolutely does, as we'll see. Well, in, in the even the name Jinga comes from like the twisted roots that were sort of like that umbilical cord yeah. wrapped around her neck. Absolutely. So she grew up for several decades as her father's favorite, just like I am. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think little brother here and and big sister may have something to say about it, but we'll see. Well, it's my podcast. We'll, we'll and go I can't with that. Say anything. <laughs> so she grew up as her father's favorite, um, training and being educated. Uh, her people, their weapon of choice was a battle axe. So she would train with these battle axes among her best generals. Uh, she also learned. Did she have a good axe or was she a bad axe? She was, sorry. in fact, a bad, a bad axe. All right, sorry. I oh, had no to problem. throw a dad joke in. Content warning, there will be plenty of dad jokes in this, in this podcast. So she also learned um, a type of martial art dance of uh, dancing side to side that they would practice in order to help them hop away from poison-tipped arrows. And they learned this martial art, which uh, we've learned since has been adapted into the Brazilian art of capoeira. Not to mention Neo from The Matrix. Yes, exactly. The like big leaning back. I'm sure they did plenty of that. So uh, she grew up uh, just with this immense amount of skill that her father really admired in her. Come 1617, she's about 35 years old, and she has a brother named Mabande. Mabande decides to off her father and kill him. And he also. Dysfunctional family sign number one. Yes, yeah. If you're playing a drinking game, dysfunctional family, fratricide, sororicide, patricide, that's a great game for this, unless you're driving. So, 
her brother Mabande ends up offing uh, not only the fa- her father, but her young son as well, because he wants to get rid of any claims to the throne, possibly. So he has her son killed. Uh, this is the son that she had with one of her concubines. Uh, she had both male and female concubines, actually, and she uh, ends up featuring as probably our only openly um, not heterosexual character of the book. So really interesting for that. So anyway, her son is gone, and he doesn't even stop there. He decides he has to sterilize her and her sisters by throwing boiling oils upon their abdomen and scalding them um, in a ritual that they believe would sterilize women. I mean, that doesn't sound very medical or scientific, though. No, but it worked. That's that's the fascinating thing. We look back mm-hmm. in history, there's these, these rituals that happen that we wouldn't call medical or are based upon evidence, but it worked. She would never go on to have kids, and she was known to... To take many to her quarters, so it was it was effective. Okay, so she's lost her child. She's probably not going to have any more children if she believes the rituals, mm-hmm. and 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 moves out to uh, I guess the interior of Angola, Matamba, that area. Absolutely. So she's kind of cast out of the kingdom for a short amount of time. That is until the Portuguese presence starts to grow in Luanda, which is actually the colonial capital of the area that uh, Jinga ruled in her time. So Governor Zhao Correa de Sousa arrives at Luanda, uh, with him his large armies uh, to continue taking over their region. And Jinga's brother Mabande says, I don't really want to deal with him. Jinga, go to Luanda and meet him and negotiate with him, please. I'd rather live. So... Jenga, please go do that. All right, so she's now playing the role of emissary for the brother who just killed her baby. Exactly. All right. So, but she sees this as an opportunity. Jenga would turn out to be someone who saw opportunities more than she saw obstacles, which would prove to make her an incredible war queen. So Jinga comes to have the peace talks and she says, I want to make a statement. She comes in with these elaborately colored fabrics and feathers and a large entourage calling herself an envoy. It's very um, the Prince Ali scene if you've seen Aladdin, either live action or animated. She has to make a statement to come in. Well, and I, I remember reading when we were researching that the Portuguese tended to wear a lot of like drab stuff, a lot of black, a lot of mm-hmm. earth tones. And um, and so then they see this fashionista show up in really colorful stuff. And, and I, I understand that caught on in Europe. Oh, absolutely. She's, you know, she was a trendsetter. She was someone who would wear these just huge, elaborate, bright outfits. And and that's kind of a fun side of this. You know, we don't only want to talk about, you know, the masculine qualities of these women, but maybe the more feminine ones uh, that, that made her stand out. And a lot of these women did have their own personal style. I mean, fashion style. Mm-hmm. They studied it later with Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, when they had to play to crowds. But mm-hmm. even during the time of absolute kings and queens, some of them had their own style. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of style, Jinga knew she had to make a statement. So she enters the negotiating room and the governor is sitting there probably in either a chair or a throne-like chair. And he gestures to some pillows on the floor for her and, and her slaves. And she says, no, I'm not going to be seated on the floor because what that would mean is that 
she is seated below the person she's talking to. And that is not an equal partnership. That is not an equal negotiation. Yeah, basically just sit down at my feet and I'll tell you how it's going to be. Yeah, like like a dog. So yeah. she wasn't willing to take that. So she orders one of her slaves to get on her hands and knees and become her chair, um, which I don't know about you, but there's a lot I'm willing to do for my boss and to keep my job. <laughs> I don't know if I'd do that, but... I know that the story about the chair comes from uh, sources like the Jesuits, mm -hmm. and they were the bad guys in some of this narrative. Did they ever say who the slave was that she was sitting on? Because if it was Turkish, she would be sitting on an Ottoman. Oh my gosh. All right. Dad Sorry, joke I just had, had, to, had to throw that in there. Sorry. <laughs> Please, go ahead. I, I think it would have to be a pretty bizarre scenario for her to have a, a Turkish slave as her chair, uh, but a hilarious one, if, if that's true. But it made an impression on the Jesuits and the Portuguese because they remembered it. They even, I think one of the sources that we saw even had like a picture of this scene. From yes. The, like early 1600s. So. Yeah, it's uh, those are some of the pictures we looked at when writing this book. It, it was it's amazing to get to kind of see the history come to life a little bit through these pictures in the eyes of the people who met her. So so she makes this visual statement to the governor, mm -hmm. trying to negotiate a tr basically a trade treaty mm -hmm. with the Portuguese, and they get into a deadlock. So what happens next? How is she going to deal with the deadlock? Sure. So overall, it went pretty well in terms of no fighting broke out. But uh, the Portuguese required that Jinga and her people give up some type of tribute and pay tribute to the Portuguese. And Jinga absolutely refused. She said, tributes are for slaves. We are not conquered. We are strong people. And we are here to negotiate with you, not just listen to your demands. And through these negotiations, they actually come to an agreement that Jinga will convert to Catholicism in order to kind of solidify the bonds between her and the Portuguese. Now, now her people had in the Ndongo region were traditionally like ancestor worshipers, mm -hmm. kind of uh, polytheistic. Um, did she ever like give any kind of bad vibes about having to be baptized as a Catholic to satisfy this trade requirement? No, as it would turn out, she actually embraced uh, all parts of the different religions she kind of visited or adopted. She never saw them as mutually exclusive, which makes her kind of an extraordinary leader that um, she says, I'm willing to accept different cultures, different religions, and use the best parts of them to my benefit and my people's benefit. So mm -hmm. uh, thus, she was kind of christened Ana de Sousa. Um, she would go on to take several names throughout her life, but that would be her Christian name. So she returns home after negotiating a, a pretty tentative peace, I would like to say. It wouldn't come to last. But she knew she needed to kind of regain power over her brother Mabande, who was waiting at home for her to probably come back with her head on a stick. She returns home, and in order to gain some political power over him, she starts this devastating whisper campaign. He was pretty insecure and fragile in general, as some of you might have guessed. But um, she absolutely degrades him, constantly is criticizing him. And after a while, he actually ended up taking um, some poison of his own volition, unfortunately, and committing suicide. As someone who works in psych, I cannot condone that, but I think this is probably the only killing we have in our books where she convinced someone to do it for her. Yeah, she sort of went uh, Hannibal Lecter on, uh, on the guy in... in persuading him to take his own poison. 
Absolutely. So now, now she's. Uh, does that make her the the king, the Nagola? Well, almost. So her brother Mbande had a son before he had killed himself, mm. obviously. And he knew he needed an insurance policy for his son. So before he had passed, he sent his son to go live with a nearby warlord named Kasa. And Kasa was told, protect my son until he is of age and he will become king. Very conveniently, in 1625, Jinga discovers she is in love with Kasa, this nearby warlord. Oh, of course, let's get married. It, it works out perfectly. Kasa's more legitimized as a leader. She's the the boy's aunt. She can Beautiful take care relationship. Of what not uh, to adorable. love. Adorable. That wasn't actually true. So Jinga puts on this big facade of, we're going to get married, we're in love. And thus begins history's probably first, a red wedding, if anyone likes Game of Thrones. Uh, the ceremony begins, and just as it starts, she has the boy killed and thrown into a river, which is actually not the first time in our book that that happens to a boy king. So uh, at this point, I'm guessing this was not on the program. No, no. A- anything else not. not on the program? What 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 else goes on? Well, uh, not only that, but she decides that anyone attending this wedding obviously is not a loyal supporter, does not love her, does not know her, fake fans, and she has uh, the guests killed. So well, we find in, in when there's a transition throughout history, a lot of the kings and queens who come in. They got a clean house, and if your mm-hmm. loyalty is a little suspicious, then we got to get rid of you. And and so it sounds like the Red Wedding, like a lot of things she did, was just a big, colorful, splashy way to do it. <laughs> Absolutely, a big, red, colorful splash. So fortunately, Casa gets to go home uh, without a bride, but with his head. So good little uh, goodie bag from the wedding. And I heard there was an open bar. So Okay. That's what people show up for. Exactly. So Jinga now has a pretty unattested claim to the throne. So she goes home to kind of really begin her reign without uh, being impacted by her brother or his legacy. Uh, the Portuguese still want to keep the people of the Dongo region in check. So they continue oppressing village chiefs and, and just t- continue to terrorize the region. Well, and, they, and the Portuguese, to be clear, I mean, they're not just using battle axes and poison arrows. They're using muskets at yeah, this point. They had muskets, powder, bullets, all that. Cannon. So mm-hmm. they definitely had, you know, an upper hand in that sense. But that kind of rallied the people to hate the Portuguese even more, which caused Jinga to get a lot of support. She had a more unified front with her people. Portuguese, unfortunately, could not let this happen. So as tentative as the peace was with Jinga before, they decided they would need a puppet king to be in charge. They would need someone who they could easily control more than Jinga. We'll talk more about puppet kings, wars, and trendy fashion wear after the break. Jinka was actually known to write amazing letters, or at least dictate amazing letters uh, in Portuguese, mm-hmm. I'm sure. And she was known for just being able to eloquently plead with people and, and convince people. It still fell on deaf ears, but I do think it's a good diplomatic skill to be able to communicate like that. So Yeah, and, and a lot of her letters, are they survive, right? I mean, because we know that the Jesuits collected them. They're in some uh, Vatican archives. So we can sort of see what her view is. And 
To me, what was remarkable about Jenga is she was very diplomatic. She could be bloodthirsty, but she also was able to provide persuasive reasons why the Portuguese should reach an accommodation with her rather than some other pretender king. Absolutely. And that's what drew people to her is she could level with the Portuguese. And that was something that that people wanted to follow. So this kind of begins our our main chapter of war for Jinga. And when I say war, a lot of it was more of a game of cat and mouse, the Portuguese being the cat, uh, Jinga being the mouse. But she had a few pretty strong victories in battle. She prepared to fight by um, gathering her people, making sure they were well stocked with poison tip arrows. They had some muskets from her time in trade, um, making sure they had their battle axes sharpened. And she began to prepare for this fight. One issue with her Mabundu armies, though, is that when they travel, the whole party comes with them. The whole village, the whole family comes along. So that is a very difficult tactic when you're leading an army through the countryside. Well, you eat a lot of food. you got a lot of people mm-hmm. who are not contributing to the battle, but they're munching up your, your Cheez-Its and uh, Doritos. Absolutely. So it, it definitely made for a, a difficult situation to deal with. And in 1626, she prepared to fight Governor Cardoso uh, throughout the regions of Angola. And she was able to actually inflict mass casualties among the Portuguese with her armies. They, they were strong fighters, but unfortunately, she rarely won the battles overall. The Portuguese just had too many more reinforcements horses, cannons, the whole bit. Absolutely. But she was there. And and that's what wins points with me is that she was there with her people fighting among them. And, And we can't say that for every war queen that we have. She was in the battles. After one battle, actually, she was captured. And in order to escape, she kind of came up with a pretty brilliant plan. She remembered that the Portuguese are here for slaves. They're here for profit. They're greedy. And she scattered lots of slaves along the battle area. And she was able to run away because... She was worth, to them, less money of a bounty than slaves were. And so she used that avarice of the Portuguese in order to get away. She outsmarted them, and and that would come multiple times throughout her history. So she has to kind of go to the east in order to rebuild power, back to Matamba, where she had run when she was ousted by her brother. And she works very hard to block off the slave trades because she knows that that is the main artery of the Portuguese finances that is financing this war. Well, so. well, and, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. So in the 21st century, we tend to think of slavery as mankind's greatest evil or one of them. At least it's in the conversation. Yeah. In the 17th century, I get the sense that at least in places like, you know, the Portuguese Empire, uh, even the Nagola area, uh, a lot, or the Nagola's domains, a, a lot of the world thought of slavery and, and trafficking and human capital as just a big business, kind of like with, let's say, you were shipping computer chips or petroleum products today. You might look at the Financial Times and find out what the going rates are. What was Jinga's view on slavery, which had done so much to hurt her own people, or at least her region of the world? Well, you know, we can definitely agree that that slavery and prejudice and racism is probably the greatest evil of mankind. And it it has always been. And there's nothing to change that. At the time, she definitely saw it more as a business transaction. And I'm sure she had to have seen, you know, what it has done to her people and maybe even people she knows. But we're here to report on the good and the bad Mm -hmm. of all of these women war leaders. We're here to not just tell you about the big wins and the awesome badass character moments, but their evils as well. 
she did it in order to help grow her kingdom economically, but she did participate in this. And while we don't have a record of her direct views on it, she for sure just saw it as, you know, like anything else, a tool to get herself further, so. Clearly, she's not like a Khaleesi breaker of chains. It sounds like she was comfortable with chains as long as she and her kingdom could profit from them, just like the Portuguese and the Spanish and a lot of others were doing the Dutch. Absolutely. So the Portuguese were getting upset that their slave trade was being impacted, and they eventually sent a new army to track her down, and uh, they chased her throughout the countrysides of Angola. They get her on this really tall cliff, and they've backed her up, kind of like in a movie, you see, like Lion King or something. And they Except have that with Lion King, they were just like holding the little kid over there. Yes. She's got people shooting like muskets at her from the other side of the cliff. So, so she's stuck at the edge of a cliff with a small group of bodyguards, and the Portuguese are coming at her from, and she's looking down at this long drop. So what does she do? She has her men actually make kind of a semicircle around her, blocking the, her view uh, from the Portuguese. And once they dissipate and move, they see, where's Jinka? Where is she gone? And this woman has shimmied down a vine, down this cliff to safety. I kid you not, 50 years old. I think that is so incredible that, that she was able to do this at 50 She could have been old. a Pilates instructor. She could have. Yeah. Yeah, my All dad right. loves Pilates mm. every week. Uh, so she's able to escape. Um, unfortunately, her sisters were captured at the time, but the queen is safe, and, and that's kind of what's important. So she's on the run, and she runs into someone named Kasanji, who opens up a new chapter of her life and of her religion. And he is an Mbangala warrior chief, and he kind of teaches her the ways of the Mbangala. Now, the Mbangala... These guys are sort of the elite fighters at this point, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're kind of like the unsullied from Game of Thrones. You just you you stay out of their way. Yeah, they're like the scary biker gang of this region of the world at the time. The Mbangala practice things like human sacrifices and cannibalism and infanticide. And Jinga wanted to join them. She wanted to be a part of that in order to kind of bring up her might and her forces to fight the Portuguese. Well, the Mbangala would have been an excellent ally to have. You get in with them and you can kind of sweep through a large part of that part of Africa, but you got to have these fighters on your side. So what does she do? So in order to join them, you had to participate in a ritual. In that ritual, she drank actual blood uh, in order to prove that she was one of them, that she was a part of them. Kind of, you know, we will reference Game of Thrones a lot in this, but when Khaleesi eats the horse heart in order to join the tribe, essentially. And all warriors and their rulers actually had to cover themselves in an oil made from pounding human corpses. That's not a joke. Pounding human corpses, including babies to cover themselves in. Yeah, I mean, this. I, I was kind of grossed out when I heard about the, the yeah. Johnson's baby oil uh, ceremony. <laughs> but um, as I understand it, the Mbangala didn't have their own children. They prided themselves on kidnapping children from other communities to grow their numbers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as appalling as it sounds, to them, a, a, a child who they had captured or given birth to was just part of their religious ceremony. Now, it's one thing for Jinga to get baptized as a Catholic. It's another thing to be kind of baptized in the Mbangala uh, religion. Did she give any kind of uh, like bad vibes about this? No, she threw herself into it just like she did with Catholicism. And she still considered herself a Catholic when she was with the Mbangala. And, and 
She learned that, you know, whether it's worshiping the battlefield or God or your ancestors, it was a part of what she needed to do to be a good ruler to her people. So she gets the Mbangala on her side. What does she do next? Well, and now she also has the name Nagola Jinga Ngombe Ega, which is Queen Jinga, Master at Arms and Great Warrior. So this is her, we'll say, third name in this series. Good she, resume builder. Oh, absolutely. She forms an all-female um, battalion, kind of like if you've seen Black Panther, they have the, the all-female battalion in that one. And she goes to work really just bringing her armies together. The Jesuits in the Congo region at the time described her and said, she lived an unmarried life, just like the queen of the Amazons, and governed the army like a female warrior. Not only that, just a female warrior, she also wanted to take on the persona of a man to appear more masculine and stronger. So she would go around in men's clothing, have people call her men. She'd even call her male concubines women and have them dress as women. And we see a number of queens throughout history who went mm-hmm. by the, the title king or yeah. prince. Because, Hatshepsut, for example. Yeah, Hatshepsut, even uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, folks like that. And you have, uh, because the people, I guess, were used to a male war leader, and this probably would have been an easier thing for them to swallow if they could just call her, hey, King Jinga. Absolutely. You know, again, just taking on what her people needed her to be. She said, if you need me to be a man, I'll be a man. Let's get stuff done. After the break, Emily tells us about how Jinga used her army and economics to squeeze the Portuguese empire. All right, so she goes after the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. She's looking, and the Portuguese at this time are under pressure from another empire that's encroaching. Oh, absolutely. So, in about four years, she starts reclaiming territory. She's offering slaves asylum as long as they join her army. They're going around trying to close the slave trading roads. Uh, they actually took the Portuguese slave trade from 13,000 to zero uh, over okay. that amount of time. That's an economic tourniquet uh, and an expensive one at this point. Absolutely. And so, as you mentioned, a new player enters the game of risk, essentially. In 1640, the Dutch come to the shorelines of Luanda and say, we're actually in charge here. We'll take it from here, Portuguese. They push the Portuguese over east. Jinga saw this as an opportunity. She said, there's a new player in the game. I want to be on his side, not the Portuguese. So Jinga allies herself with the Dutch then, and they join forces, and they start putting more pressure on the remnants of the Portuguese? Absolutely. So Jinga says, all right, it's time to decide, is this war? Do we wait? What goes on? So she relies on some of her clerics, actually. They do a ceremony where they have two roosters fight, one black and one white. And if the white wins, we go to war. Well, the white won. It's funny how over history, Julius Caesar did that stuff all the time. You you Mm -hmm. would just find the right religious guy who would give you the right symbols. Absolutely. Unfortunately for her, it might have been a little bit premature. She was in her 60s at this point and had around 80,000 men under her control, but it still would not prove to be quite enough to go against the Portuguese. So in 1646, the Portuguese refreshes their army. She goes to fight them. And right as she's approaching the battlefield, the Dutch have to run away from their allies and Jinga and take care of their situation back at Luanda. So they leave 
Jenga out by herself to the win. So Jenga's master plan is to go after the Portuguese with the with the help of the Dutch, and the Dutch just just ghost her. Yeah, essentially they they leave her by herself to take care of it, and she's not able to. She understands this isn't a fight that she can win. So she knows that she can't win militarily. What does she do? Well, she understands that she just needs to go back to Matamba and kind of counter losses and take care of her people, continue growing her kingdom there. Um, and just kind of let the world play out as it does. So so Jenga's in a stalemate now. She can't push out the Portuguese. The Portuguese can't push her out of Africa. How's it end up? Well, kind of in her retirement. That's kind of where she decides that, you know, she would go into battle and send men into battle for several more years. But that kind of ends her reign as a war queen. She goes to Matamba and retires. And she uh, really just develops her kingdom and her people. And she includes all of these backgrounds that she's picked up through her life. She worked with the Vatican to establish Christianity in her kingdom. She built churches. She developed infrastructure and built castles adorned with jewels and beautiful fabrics for her people. But those Vatican connections that Jenga had Mm -hmm. did prove helpful in finally reaching some kind of temporary peace with the Portuguese where they could both live together. Yeah, absolutely it did. She she was able to negotiate, again, a pretty tentative peace with the Portuguese in her kind of retirement years. She died peacefully at 81 years old after kind of dazzling the younger generations and the mercenaries with her stories of her incredible life that they came to write down for us. And she actually died as a Catholic. She said, I forgo concubines, I forgo any sacrifices, I don't need any of that. I, they I they struck human sacrifice off the uh, off the funeral rites? They did, but um, of course some of her local supporters couldn't help themselves and they did some sacrifices of the human and animal variety. Old habits die hard. Well, Emily, this is a fascinating story about, um, about a woman who combines so many different cultural elements and so many different leadership styles from diplomacy to flexibility to determination. How do you think she stacks up against other war queens that uh, we're going to be talking about? Uh, what points do you give her? I'd have to definitely give plenty of points for the hand-to-hand combat. I mm-hmm. think if any of our war queens got into a fight, I think she would definitely win. Oh, yeah. She's definitely willing to go the extra mile. She has the will to do that. In terms of military strategy, I think she outwitted the Portuguese a lot. Didn't as often beat them in battle. So some points here, some taken away there. And to some extent, you got to go with the cards you're given. And if the Portuguese have a worldwide empire and you've just got a kingdom in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's kind of a tough lopsided match. Absolutely. So I, I definitely admire her. Most points, of course, go to her flexibility and chameleon-like ability to embrace cultures, bring cultures together. I think that's an important quality in a leader. All right. So out of 10, one to 10, oh, what do gosh. you give her? I'd have to give her, I'll give her an eight. She, she's won a lot of points with me for her physical ability. So Yeah, definite badassery. She was also a fashionista. So uh, this is an amazing person. Well, that's our story of Queen Jinga of Angola. She was a remarkable combination of strength, courage, wisdom and skill and set a pattern of tolerance and inclusion for her people. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of War Queens. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war.
If you have any questions for us about War Queens, if you're curious about something you heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com. Again, that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com. We'll try to answer your questions on a future episode. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at War Queens Podcast. War Queens is a production of Diversion Audio. Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez, editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Diversion Audio. 